My name is Keith Brault, and I am privileged to be with you all once again, for those of you who I have not had the privilege to meet yet. And I'm really excited to open this passage of Scripture that we just heard read from the book of Hebrews. Counselors are trained to assess and assist in healing relationships. And I've, I've seen counselors before, and it's been helpful. They often ask relationship questions such as, what kind of relationship did you have with your father? Or how open and connected do you feel with your spouse? Or what kind of relationships do you have with your teenagers? Things like that. And my first response is, ugh, right? Any human relationship that I have is strained. Every human relationship that I have contains stress fractures. Uh, I hinder every one of my human relationships, either by my overt selfishness, or by my ignorance, or by my cowardice. I impose stress fractures and strain on every bond of friendship that I have. When I think right now, you know, where is my wife and where am I and, and how are we related together, there's a lot of good. There's joy, there's um, companionship, there's friendship. But I also know there are things that we're always working through. Same with my children, particularly my grown children who are in college. When I think about the time that we shared together while they were at home and where they are now and where I am. When I think, where is my daughter or my 18-year-old son and where am I and how related together? It's complicated. There are stress fractures and strains. There's a lot of joy and we love, and we love hanging out together. I'm glad that they're both in Harrisonburg and I'm in Charlottesville so I can go up and take them to dinner regularly. It's not as if we don't have a relationship, but I also look back with regret. I don't think I'm alone here. You know, when, when I mess up somewhere, somehow, there's a stress fracture. And my first move, I don't know if you're like me, my first move is to not, to deny it, to, um, to overlook it, to minimize it, to kind of think, don't stress fractures just kind of heal on their own? I don't want to be the person, I don't want to be the, the father or the husband or the friend I don't want to be that guy who's always coming needing forgiveness or coming needing to own something. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be a strong, capable, good husband. I want to be a strong, capable, good father. And it's hard for me to get past my sense of shame or regret or the strain that I know it will put on the relationship in the short term if I'm just open, if I just own something, right? A lot of our early conflicts when I was first married 21 years ago were about stuff like this. I would say, I'll be home at 6, and I'd get home at 6.15 and just kind of like, hey, it's good to see you, it's good to see everybody, and just kind of like spackle over it, right? And my wife finally said, you know what, it would help me if you would come in the door and say, sweetie, I'm so sorry that I'm 15 minutes late. Um, X, Y happened at the last minute, and I apologize. And that would give her a chance to say, no problem. Thanks for telling me. Yeah, my day was really good, right? My tendency is to withdraw or spackle over those things. 
I don't want to be seen again as the husband or father or friend who's always needing mercy and help. The biggest problem, I think, this is just me, the biggest problem with my relationship to God, and I would guess I'm not alone, is that I wrongly impose upon God the same ideas of stress fractures and strain when it comes to my failures against Him. When I am in the wrong with God, or when I'm drifting, or when I'm doubting, or when I'm fearful, or when I'm anxious, when I'm not all buttoned up, which is never, I tend to try to fix it myself. I tend to wait for that stress fracture to heal on its own. I tend to try to clean myself up a bit before I go and engage God. I keep my distance. I hedge. I treat myself as radioactive. I don't quickly engage God freely and openly. And in the Scriptures we're about to open this morning, God explodes that wrong thinking. He explodes that wrong thinking. Not only is wrong, but actually, I believe He's going to confront us with the fact that if we aren't going freely to Him, if we aren't going quickly to Him, if we're not beating a path to the throne of grace, all the time, constantly, then we're disparaging the person of Jesus Christ. We're disparaging the work that He's already accomplished and is keeping accomplished. The book of Hebrews is a beautiful and deep sermon. The writer of Hebrews calls it um, an exhortation. Thank you for bearing with this brief exhortation. So it's a sermon that's preached to people who are on the verge of drifting away from Jesus, who are on the verge of exchanging Jesus for some kind of other system, maybe going back to Judaism, or adding Jesus to Judaism, but still kind of having one foot in each camp. But it defines a relationship that he established and maintains that is like no other relationship. Both his finished work as a unique once-for-all sacrifice and his ongoing work as a unique mediator, a unique great high priest who keeps God and God's people in constant, perfect peace. I can't say that about any other relationship that I have, but it's true of God because of Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at. Hebrews, the two passages that we just heard read, Hebrews 1, if you've got your Bible, verses 1 through 4, and then Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, they're the bookends, they're the closing of this first point of this sermon. So it's a multi-point sermon, Hebrews. This is the first point, and these are the bookends that kind of encapsulate not only that, that section of the sermon, but really are the DNA for the entire book. And I, I'd like us to consider two questions, one for each of those sections. The first question, what has Jesus done? And then we'll look at what is Jesus always doing? What has Jesus done? Chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Let's listen, and as you listen, be asking yourself this question, which I think is clearly answered here. What has Jesus done? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than there than theirs. This passage contains references to the only two times I know of that God explicitly rested after doing some work. I don't know of any other two times. The first one is alluded to here in creation, that whom also he created the world. We remember from the creation narrative that's recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that Jesus spent, or God through Jesus spent six days speaking into first nothingness and then speaking to that formless thing that he then he created this thing and then he he was building it out for six days he's building it out and then on the sixth day he populates it with human beings and you think about like all that he did in those however you want to interpret that in terms of you know epics or uh, or 24-hour periods it doesn't really matter that I mean, it, it maybe matters to you. I'm just saying, for the point, the point is that after God was done creating, the ears of an owl, right, that are like offset a little bit so that when that owl is flying around over a pitch black field at night, it can grab a field mouse in the dark just through its sonar, just through the ears. That's crazy, Right? I mean, if you think about all the details of creation and how perfect it is. So after six days, not because he was tired. I asked a bunch of teenage boys this question in the car on the way to Richmond yesterday for a soccer game. Um, why do you think God rested? Oh, he was tired. Maybe the, you know, they had all kinds of, of answers. It wasn't because he's tired. God neither sleeps nor slumbers. He doesn't need rest. He's omnipotent. It wasn't because he had sweat on his brow and he was just like, gosh, that was hard. The, the owl ear thing really kind of wore me out. <laughs> Ages of notes on the or when it comes or, or how did I make that tiny squirrel brain to know to start gathering nuts right now because that took me forever. Good grief. I just want to have some lemonade and and sit on the porch for a little while. It wasn't that. God resting on the seventh day punctuates, this is very good. This is perfect. There's nothing else I need to get up and do. I don't have to get up and fine-tune this or fine-tune that or, you know, I think I out. This relationship between this part of creation and that part isn't perfectly symbiotic. None of that. It was perfect. And so God sat down and put his feet up to punctuate. That's as good as it's, that's perfect. There's nothing else for me to get up and do. There's nothing left on my punch list. That's really important. That God rested because it was perfect. He called it very good. There was nothing he had to get up and fix. And then it mentions the second and only other time I know of. Same idea. 
after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After doing everything Jesus needed to do, he came here for one purpose. Later on in the book it says, you didn't sacrifices of bulls and goats, but a body you prepared for me. I am in this body for one reason, to be a sacrifice who can make purification for sins, who can perfectly represent God, being fully God, and who can perfectly represent mankind, being a human being. You created this body for me so that I could make purification for sins. And after he made purification for sins, he sat down. That's important for you. There is so much important pastoral weight that the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to his original audience and that the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to us. Whatever you did when you were in middle school, whatever candy bar you stole when you were in the fifth grade, whatever you've done today, whatever you're contemplating doing, whatever you're trapped in right now, whatever you're going to do ten years from now, from the small little lies to patterns of lust or patterns of gossip or patterns of comparing yourself to other people for patterns of selfishness. Whatever is going on, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you look to Him as your Savior, He made purification for all of your sins once for all and He sat down. That's why this relationship is different than any other relationship. When I sin against Joanna, we have to work it out. I have to earn her trust back. I have to apologize, and then she's hurt, and there's this strain, and, and we have to work through it. She, doesn't, she hasn't sat down as my wife. Like, whatever you do, we're good. We're, we're at perfect peace no matter what. That's not how human relationships work. But that's how, I, that's how I think about my relationship with God, which is wrong. Jesus sat down after making purification for your sins. If you put your faith in Jesus, there is nothing more to be done to purify you from your sins. Our pride and shame press us to read stress fractures and strain into the way that we see God relating to us. Our pride and shame press us into keeping our distance. Our pride and shame keep us in these patterns of, of self-purification. If I could clean myself up a little bit, then I'll go talk to God about it. I'll just give it a couple of weeks, and if, if I haven't still been blowing it, then I'll go talk to God, because I'll be on better footing. That's not... That's not Jesus sitting down. That's not believing that Jesus is sitting down. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But just for now, he's not getting up. Nothing that you've done or nothing that you're doing or nothing that you're going to do is going to make Jesus get up and offer another drop of blood for it. You have to see him that way. He, the eternal sacrifice before God, is your perfect mediator. He, because of what he's already done, making purification for your sins, is always there saying, that person is clean. That person is purified. 
I know they're screwing up all the time. I know that they're still blowing it. I know that there's still a lot for them to learn. But that person is purified. There's nothing else for me to do. I'm sitting down at your right hand, visibly, not in a room somewhere, by himself, right before the holiness of the majesty on high, always mediating for you. To the next point. So that's what Jesus has done. He made purification for your sins so perfectly, so completely, that he sat down permanently. So what is Jesus doing now? Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This helps us to understand the kind of relationship that, that Christ has established, but also the kind of relationship that Christ wants, the kind of relationship that Christ has afforded you, and the kind of relationship that he's inviting you. He's, this, this writer is, is commanding you um, to hold fast your confession, but also to do other things. Listen to the verb tenses here. We have a great high priest. I have a wallet in my pocket. I, I don't need to go find a wallet. I already have one. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have a great high priest already. And one who's passed through the heavens. But listen, he says, keep on holding fast to your confession. He was tempted and he keeps on sympathizing with those who are being tempted. Then he goes on to say, and this is where the relationship part is, where we can hear the heart of God in this, I hope. He tells you, he tells me, keep on drawing near to the throne of grace. Keep on receiving mercy. Keep on receiving grace to help in every time of need. It's an image almost well-worn path. There's a well-worn path between, we live in kind of the country a little bit, um, in, in Ivy, between Charlottesville and Crozet. And so we're, we, there's this big field, and, and the closest houses are, are a cul-de-sac that are through the, this, wood, this patch of woods. And whenever we need something from a neighbor or whatever, um, we, I, I, whenever I do, usually, or to get one of my tools fixed, um, I take this path through the woods, and it's a well-worn path because we have teenagers, and they have teenagers, and they're thick as fleas, and they're always back and forth. The, our kids are always at their house or vice versa. We always prepare twice as much food because we don't know what teenage boys are going to be added to the table. There's this well-worn path between our house and this neighboring cul-de-sac because it's always being traversed. That's what he's saying. Keep on coming. If you've got something to talk to me about, keep on coming. Keep on coming. Keep on coming to the throne of grace. Constantly. Keep on drawing near. That's the verb. That's the weight that it carries. But not just that. So that you can keep on receiving mercy. And so that you can keep on receiving grace 
for help in every time of need. Jesus is constantly, what is he doing? He's constantly inviting. He's constantly beckoning you. And he's constantly administering mercy to cleanse your conscience. He's constantly administering grace to help you in every time of doubt or anger or confusion or whatever it might be. That's what he's doing. There's a passage or there's a story that's contained in all of the Gospels, sometimes multiple times. And I may have shared this with you once before, so forgive me, but it illustrates this point well. This story of Jesus feeding the multitudes, like, happened. How, how did that work? What did that look like? And the verb tenses in those stories help us to understand it, and it's amazing. Uh, there are these verb tenses. One is that, like, there's a sequence of, of one-off verbs. Um, he took the bread and then he blessed the bread, and then he broke the bread. Those are all just like, bam, he took it once, he blessed it once, he broke it once, but then it switches. And then he kept on giving it to his disciples. And then the disciples were carrying it off to the multitude. So it puts Jesus in the center of this picture as this source of constant bread being distributed. So Andrew comes over and, and Jesus gives him some and then Peter comes over and he gets some and James comes over and he gets some and John comes over and he gets some. But Jesus is just constantly giving out bread. That's how we can imagine him now at the... Hey. That's how we can imagine him now. Do we need a minute? You can laugh. That was funny. That could have been bad. Um, that's how we can imagine him now at the throne of grace. He's there constantly administering um, himself, constantly administering, but not just himself, specific things that we need, two specific things that we always need, that we're afraid maybe to deal with with human relationships, but he's trying to explode that with his relationship with us. Come to me. Come to me. You always need mercy. Wear a well-worn path to me for mercy. I want to help you. Man, I understand what you're going through. I've been in a body. I know how that car lists hard to the left and to the right. I know that you're going to graze guardrails. I know you're going to T-bone guardrails. I get it. It's crazy trying to be tempted in every way. I've been in that car. I've driven that car. I never touched a guardrail. I was perfect. But man, if you hit a guardrail, let's talk. If you're hitting a guardrail, let's talk. If you've gotten tired of being in the car and you just ditched it and you're just walking on the road angry, let's talk. I get it. I am a sympathetic high priest and I'm here to always administer this to you. Don't let your shame or your guilt or thinking like I do about some human relationships. I don't want to be that kind of husband. I don't want to be that kind of friend. I don't want to be that kind of husband that's weak and that's failing and that needs to ask for mercy. I'm just going to fix it myself. I feel that same way about God and I want this sermon from Hebrews, not mine, this sermon, to jar me out of that mess. So I don't want to be that kind of disciple. I don't want to be the guy that's always needing to get help from God. I want to be a good disciple that he's proud of. 
I want to have my stuff together. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's a joke. That's a joke. There's the healthiest disciple. The healthiest disciple is the one with the most barren path between that person and the throne of grace. The healthiest disciple is the one who goes most frequently and says, God, I need mercy. Even if it's just for a thought. Even if it's just for anger. And, and I need help. Can you please help me? How many of my problems do I try to solve myself? Jesus here is telling us, this is what I want. This is what I've done. I've sat down. There's no reason for you not to come to me. You're purified. But now what I want our relationship to look like is this ongoing conversation. My prayer for myself and for you is that the word of God we've just considered explodes that kind of wrong thinking and enables us to relate to Jesus on the basis of what he has done and what he is doing. This will take imagination. I mean, the, the writer of Hebrews, this is a vivid picture. When you pray, I suggest, when you pray and you're, and you're trying to visualize something, visualize Jesus sitting down, wounded, but sitting down like this before God. And you're coming to God, and Jesus is right there saying, this one's covered. What do you want to talk about? What, what mercy do you need? We've got that. What help do you need? That's what I'm here for. I'm your constant fountain of mercy and grace. And if we're not having those conversations, if we can be honest with ourselves, that's pride. That's just pride. That's me trying to make purification for myself. That's me trying to say, thanks for what you did, Jesus. Now let me show you what I can do. That's the relationship is defined here. If we want to bring glory and honor to Jesus with our lives, he's giving us the, one of the ways how to be the person who's coming, seeing him as he is, having done what he's done, and constantly doing what he's constantly doing as your great high priest who's saying, this one's good. Now let's pull up a chair. Let's talk. What do you need? How can I help your conscience? I'm sympathetic. And how can I give you grace to, to take the next step, to, to, to make it the next hour, to make it the next day? Come to me quickly. Say everything. And let's be friends. So may God help us to beat a well-worn path to Jesus and to have this conversation openly and frequently and when we sin, to have this conversation quickly with him. Holy Spirit, may it be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.